0: Hey, as we get started this morning, I would like to uh, acknowledge that Pastor Nick did a fantastic job last week in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Yeah. Thank you, Pastor Nick. I also want to acknowledge that uh, somebody is going to turn 30 years old tomorrow. If Nick would stand up, 30 seems like a lifetime ago for me, but it's just the beginning for you. And we would like to wish you a happy birthday. I hope he has some special plans for tomorrow. I know that uh, we do on Tuesday with him as a staff team. And I just love to see uh, the growth of this young man. And uh, just to watch how God is continuing to work in his life and to sculpt him into uh, just a great person and uh, a person that I know that uh, the church is very happy to have as part of our staff. So thank you, Nick. Open your Bibles, we are back into Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this morning, and um, if you've been with us for a while, you know that I'm in a series that's called Chasing the Wind, and it's been a couple of weeks since uh, I had you rehearse the main word that is in Ecclesiastes, and so I'm putting it back up here again for you, and I need for you to say it again because I want to make sure this sticks with you, and so one, two, three, Havel. You, you can do better. Ready? One, two, three, Havel, And that word is translated most often as meaningless or vanity. The ESV we're going to be reading from today says vanity. But I think a better translation of it is vapor. It's something that's here and gone. It's something that you can't grasp onto. And, and that's what he's saying, Solomon, the, the writer of our book, saying so much of life is like Hevel. So much of like, life is like this idea of of vapor. So far, he's covered topics like pleasure and work and companionship last week. Nick reminded us two are always better than one. Today, the passage, well, it's going to take a little turn. It's going to feel a little bit different, and it's going to feel different because he's not going to be talking about the remaining value of something or the lack of remaining value. This week, he's going to turn the corner and say, I want to talk to you about your conduct before God. So let's go ahead and pick up this week in chapter 5 we We're going gonna be covering the first seven verses today and the next week we'll pick up the rest of chapter five. And this is the way that Solomon begins. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Don't, do not be rash with your mouth Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God's in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth lead you in, do not excuse me, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is, and there's our word, Havel, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Kids, I want to talk to you for a minute because uh, I'm encouraging you to encourage mom and dad to do something with you. And it's something that my parents did with me when I grew up, and it dealt with a restaurant. Every time we went to a restaurant together, my parents were in the charge of making sure that I had certain manners that I observed. So like, for instance, one of the things that happened every time I got ready to enter into a restaurant was that the ladies always went first. If you walked into a restaurant, the ladies were ahead of the men, and that was one of the pieces of protocol in being able to go into a restaurant. Uh, The other thing that would happen is you'd sit at the table, and uh, you would put your napkin into your lap. And these were all part of the table manners I was learning how to practice at a restaurant. Table, uh, napkin in your lap, Uh, we always were learning how to use silverware. And if there's a little tip for you here, it's always the outside in. So you're always using silverware in that order. You would have a time where you would uh, have conversation at the table and there was not allowed any kind of ruckus. So again, there was no whining. Uh, We were at a restaurant. It was a special place, a special event. And so we were learning these kinds of manners. We were learning uh, about how to eat food, how to have conversation. And all of those things were being practiced at that moment. Now, my parents did not have any threats. My parents did not threaten me with uh, punishment or spankings. My parents did one thing and did it very well. They said, it's a privilege to be here, and we're not going to, uh, make, uh, we're not going to make sure that we're, uh, we're making sure that we're not being a nuisance to anybody else in the restaurant. So if you can't control yourself, then we'll go outside. And one of my parents... Sometimes they had to only do this a few times, but they took me literally outside until I could gain my composure and then they would bring me back in. And this was the way that they taught me how to have table manners. And it was a good thing. It's something I've remembered now all of my life. Denise says, I'm pretty good in a restaurant these days. So, you know, I, I, the, 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 it all worked for her and worked for me. And so again, you know, my mother would say to Denise, you're welcome. You know, hey, I've trained him a, a, a bit. And so again, that, that's all something that my parents delivered to me and it was a good thing. Uh, if you're a young man here today, I'm hoping that you'll say, whoop, hold on a second here, we're at a restaurant. Ladies go first. And that'll be something that you, uh, you know, practice and you're learning again about how to conduct yourself in a, re- a restaurant. Well, today's passage has a very similar feel as a to table manners. This week, Solomon is interested in the way that we have uh, approached to the temple, and he says, I want to teach you about temple manners. That's the kind of turn of phrase I have this week, is that from table manners to temple manners, we're learning things this week about the way or the rules that we use in order to prepare ourselves to go to the temple. Now, again, I want to acknowledge right up front here today that we have a little different context than Solomon did, In our context, well, in Solomon's context, he was worried about them going to the temple, that big building in Jerusalem where they would go to worship and sacrifice. And in our case, obviously, it's different because we don't have that temple there. It was the holiest place in all of Israel was that temple. And they had a distinction in their minds between temple places or religious places, holy places, and ordinary places. And perhaps we have some similar feelings in our society today because again, temples and mosques and shrines and all those kinds of things would be considered holy places versus ordinary places. But again, the the New Testament especially and Jesus' words are a reminder to us that that distinction has somehow shifted. I, I think about the conversation between the Samaritan woman and Jesus and she is looking at this mountain that her people worship at. It's called Mount Gerizim and she says, You know, are we worshiping on the right mountain or should we be worshiping over there in Jerusalem? And this is what Jesus says to her A time is coming and now has come when true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And so Jesus is telling her, It's not the place anymore, it's the nature of your worship, it's the kind of worship that you give to the Lord that matters. The place is not the part that matters. Furthermore, as you remember, Jesus dies, and the temple curtain near the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, is split in two, signifying that the the holiness of God now is just kind of poured out and is pervading the world. And again, this is what the New Testament is teaching is, uh, teaching us is that the dwelling place of God is now inside of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, the dwelling place of God is now inside of you and inside of us collectively. And that's, wow, that's, that's the big thing to think is that the temple once of uh, this holiest place has now invaded the space with you and me. I give that. Again, to say our contexts are different. For Solomon, he wanted to educate his people on how to go to the temple. In our case, we're certainly saying we wanna educate you on how to come to church, but we're also educating you on, on, on what's happening in your lives because all of your lives are the expression of worship to God. And so how are you conducting yourself in all of these aspects of everyday life in which you're bringing glory to God and you are now his temple coming into the space of others? Well, I have four temple manners I want to give you today that will apply to your lives. applied back in Solomon's day, but it also applies to ours. Four temple manners. Let's go through these and you'll find them right in the text this morning. And the first one starts in verse one. And the first temple manner is guard your steps. That's what he even says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. What could Solomon mean by that? Does he mean, you know, walk a certain way, guard your steps a certain way? Like you say to somebody, hey, it's rather slippery, watch your step. I mean, is that, is, that, is that what he's meaning? No, it's certainly a metaphor in this case. And it's a metaphor that means a general caution or a discipline in the way that you're conducting your life. It means really a preparation of your life or a preparation of your heart. And so when we're getting ready to go worship God, whether it's here or maybe it's at uh, our, our home group or our community group, or maybe it's on a missions trip, I mean, there's many aspects of where you're going to go and you're going to engage with God. What he's saying here is don't do that flippantly. It's not like other activities in your life. You know, you might consider it's like, it's it's as easy as like going to the grocery store. No, 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 he's saying this is a special thing. It's in a special place when you're going to worship God and it's going to take, again, the preparation of your heart to be able to do that. I want you to imagine for a moment that you were invited to the White House. You know, President Uh, Obama, or excuse me, President Biden, that was one ago, President Biden and uh, Dr. Jill invite you, and they say, you know, come to the White House. And yeah, well, if Biden's not your president, then consider Trump made the invitation, or Obama made the invitation, or even Bush made the invitation. Pick a favorite president, because the illustration just matters that you would really want to go to this. And so they invite you to the White House. And I know that, again, uh, the very first thing that Women, you probably say is, what should I wear? You know, what should I wear for that event? Men, you're probably saying, what are they serving for dinner? I mean, that, you know, you're, you're asking that question. And um, you're, you're probably wondering like, oh, wow, what's the protocol? Should I, should I, should I bring a gift of some kind? And maybe, maybe you're going to bring a gift for their children or their grandchildren in this case. Maybe, maybe you're going to wash that car. In fact, you know, maybe you're even gonna borrow a car because you know like, I don't wanna take my little jalopy and that's not gonna cut it. I I need a, a better car to be able to go to the White House. And in your mind, you're thinking about putting your best foot forward. I mean, this is a special occasion. You're thinking about guarding your steps, caring for your conduct, planning, preparation. You're taking that day very, very seriously. Solomon says, that we are to guard our steps. That means that we're preparing. We're, we're, We're getting ready for this idea of actually meeting with God. And he says there's something that's a really fundamental part of this in your guarding of your steps and your preparation. He says you're going to listen more than you're going to offer the sacrifice of fools. Every time you come before God, you're there to listen you're not predominantly coming into that environment to set the agenda. The agenda is being set for you. You're participating with it. You're being taught under the authority of God. And so he's saying here, I want you to come with this posture of listening rather than this posture of imposing your will on this situation. Solomon says he contrasts that with the sacrifice of fools. There's been a lot of conjecture about what he means by that. What is the sacrifice of a fool? In the context here, I believe what he's saying is it's something that's done flippantly. It's something that's like, yeah, whatever. And it's really, he's saying, that's, a, that's an error. That's something that's wrong. And, and God sees through that. It, you, you come in order to give a lot of lip service, but not a lot of life service. And God sees through that smoke screen And so that's why he says, Don't come and offer the sacrifice of a fool. And that's the thing about a fool. The fool doesn't even realize that's the kind of sacrifice they're giving because, again, fools don't realize they're fools. Guard your steps. That's the first of the temple manners that I want you to hear. Following closely on the heels of that is this posture, again, of listening and preparing our hearts. Solomon uses a corollary, and that is manner number two don't be rash with your mouth. Verse 2 says don't be rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. And of course that advice is found in many many locations in the scriptures. Another one of those that's a favorite of mine is James chapter 1 verse 19. Now my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. And so you're guarding your tongue, you're watching your speech. One of the signs of a fool is somebody who's constantly moving their mouth, and oftentimes they're moving their mouth about people or things or matters that, well, quite frankly, really shouldn't be involved, they shouldn't be involved with at all, but that's one of the signs of a fool is that that person is constantly in- interrupting and invading space of, about things w- that really don't pertain to them. I love what Will Rogers says. He has a quote. He's a famous actor of years past. But this way he says. Live so that you wouldn't be ashamed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. <laughs> I, I just love that one. You know, so you're, you're watching your mouth. You're watching your words. Your, your tongue has a level of restraint. Some people believe that it heightens them if they are constantly finding errors or faults in others. And so there's this constant litany of things that's wrong with somebody else. The Bible has something to say about that. It says your spirituality is actually gauged by the level of mercy you could show to somebody else, by the level of correction gently that you could involve yourself in in bringing somebody else back and restoring them as an offender. That's something that God really values. Too many times we read a passage like Galatians chapter 6, which I'll tell you what that passage says in a minute, but we read it like this. Brothers, if anybody is caught in a transgression, you are spiritual, should get on the phone and tell everybody about it. And most of all, how much it shocks you since you are so pure and holy. Galatians 6.1 does not say that because it says this, brothers, brothers, If anybody's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, but with a spirit of gentleness. Temple manners require the control of your tongue. Control your tongue before God. Control your tongue before others. If you haven't noticed, COVID has made that very difficult because COVID has brought out a level of Anger on the inside of people. It seems as though people have short fuses. Fights on airplanes. I can't remember the last time I've heard of fights on airplanes, and now it's like a weekly occurrence. Road rage has just ballooned, and people are just angry on the roads all over the place. In fact, there is a brand new word that has been coined for the pandemic, and it's called pangry. It's a, you know obviously the fusion of the word pandemic and angry. So people are pangry. And what it's telling us is underneath there is this boiling sense of, of, of loss of control. There's this boiling sense of, of, of this is not the way I want it to be, and that's pouring out in people's lives. Here's what I would call you to be, be different. <laughs> I'd call you to be different. When you miss a connecting flight and you have to go up to the desk in order to talk to the clerk, oh, man, run this through your mind. That's right. This is an opportunity for me to have some temple manners here and for me to treat this person with courtesy. You're getting picking up the phone to call that person or that company that's gotten the bill wrong again and you just can't believe it. Oh, that's right. This is an opportunity for some temple matters. I get to restrain my tone and I get to not take it out on this poor gal on the other end of the phone Let's just make a minimum wage. I get to show her a level of grace and understanding. I'm, I'm speaking to myself now because again, I'm caught in Pangry too. I mean, it's a, it's a tough time in order not to have some level of, of, of anxiety and somehow lash out on, at other people. But he's saying, we as temple people, we as people have the temple on the inside of us, we are showing a level of self-control with our tongues. Here's the third temple manner. It's found in verse 4. Fulfill your vows. It says, when you make a vow, do not delay in paying it. The NIV says it this way: when you make a vow, don't delay in fulfilling it. And that's what I think he's really saying here: is, fulfill your vows. While we likely, well, in our society today, don't think we make many vows, and so again, that's something that's kind of out of our normal view of what we are about, but a vow is a promise to God in which other people have witnessed it. It's a promise to God that we'll do a certain thing if he will give us a certain blessing. And so again, we're we're, we're saying to God, "I, I want you to do this, and so I'm going to offer this in return for what you're giving to me. The subject of vows is misunderstood by people because in the Old Testament, vows were entirely voluntarily, voluntary, but at the point at which you made one, then it was compulsory. So you didn't have to make a vow, but if you did make a vow, then you had to keep it. That's the idea of what vows were like in the Old Testament. Now again, many of you are saying that's old stuff, We don't have any vows anymore. Vows don't really make a difference. And so, you know, what's the point of this? Well, let me tell you, there is a big sense of uh, vows and their importance today. And I want to take you back a few years, and it's back to the time of the inauguration of President Obama. That happened on January 20th, 2009. And I want to show you a picture. This is a picture of uh, Obama ready to take his vows. Supreme Court Justice John Roberts stood wearing his black robe and obama is there placing his hand on abraham lincoln's bible and he raises his right hand in order to take this vow robert starts off the oath of office but he says it incorrectly he is supposed to say that i will faithfully execute the office of president of the united states but instead robert said that i will execute the office of president of the united states faithfully so it's just one word one word got moved from early in the sentence to late in the sentence and Obama kind of stutters for a minute there, but he's like, okay, I'll be dutiful, and he repeats that after Roberts. Now, the rest of the oath went off perfectly, no no missteps. And although the inauguration ceremonies went on and events happened, the misquoted oath just kind of drilled in, especially to some of the lawyers. And so again, uh, Greg Craig was one of the lawyers at that time, and he said, you know, we're not gonna take any chances here. And so the next day, he had Obama say the oath of office with Roberts again in the map room. Here's a picture of that. And so they do the oath of office all over again because they said the Constitution is what puts a president into office and says that he has authority. And so if we box it up in any way, well, you know, it could mess things up. And so let's go ahead and do it again. So you imagine what Roberts feels like. I gotta make the president say this again because I misplaced one word. But that's what they did. And they wanted to make sure it was done right. And so again, what I'm saying to you is vows make a difference. Vows make a difference. The way that you say a vow, the way that you keep a vow, it makes a difference. And as much as the Constitution was over the president and the branches of gover- governance in the United States, the Constitution really is God and his scriptures for us. And those things matter. Solomon says, vows Vows matter. The Bible says that there are many aspects of vows. There are some that are done very admirably and there are some that are done very foolishly. Let me give you an example of each. In the Old Testament, one of the best vows that I know of is the vow of Hannah. And you remember, Hannah is the wife of Elkanah, and she is barren. She can't have any children. And so she says, she makes a vow to God, perhaps in the presence of some others too, that if God you'll give me a son, I will dedicate him to the priesthood. And so God gives her this son and I'm sure there was a moment of temptation there to say, well, you know, I've got this beautiful son now. I sure would like to keep him but that's not what she does. She gives him over to Eli and Samuel is raised as a priest and guess what? The guy becomes... Like the stud of all times And he is just this, this wonderful man Who is successively over many of the next leaders Saul and David being two of them And so again, he's just, he's this epic figure That is in the scriptures And it comes from Hannah's pure heart And this vow she makes to God Let me give you one that's on the other side And it's in the darkest book of the Bible, I think The book of Judges I love that book for the way it's put together, but man, it's giving a a punch of a story. And Jephthah's the leader. Jephthah's a military leader, and his enemy is the Ammonites. And he says, God, if you'll give me victory over the Ammonites, then when I get home from my victory, whatever comes out of my house to greet me, I will offer as a burnt sacrifice to you. And so he goes home, he wins the battle, he goes home, and guess what comes out the door to him? It's his daughter, And it's a terrible oath. It's a terrible vow that he took. And now there's this conundrum. Do I follow through on that? And do I take her life? And so again, it was this terrible, terrible vow. Let's talk about some of the vows that you and I might take because there's more than you think. Here's a vow. The vow is baptism. It's a pledge of your loyalty to Jesus. You are signifying that you're dead to yourself now and you are alive to Christ, and that is a very significant vow, again, of your allegiance to Jesus. How about you pledge to join a church? That's a vow. You're pledging your full participation with your knees and with your hands and with your wallet. If you've taken a church office, maybe as a pastor or an elder or a deacon, then you're saying that you are faithfully going to oversee God's people. And there are stern warnings in the scriptures for the person who shirks that responsibility. I've saved the most common for last. And my guess is some of you are ahead of me and you're like, oh, I know a vow. There's a vow that's a very common one in society today. And of course, that is the marriage vow. And a marriage vow is where you're saying that I'm going to be faithful to this person, my spouse, for my lifetime. My husband or my wife are going to gain my loyalty, my trust, my, uh, my safety, all of the things that I'm going to give to them. And of course, it's a sad day when marriage vows are viewed as convenience. When it's just, you know, it, I'll keep it as long as it's easy for me. I'll, I'll keep it as long as, you know, I want to. Marriage vows are before a holy God And so Solomon's point is this, think very carefully about your ability to keep a vow before you take it because you don't have to take it, but when you take it, it is binding. And so he's saying, watch your step in that way and make a vow before God that you know that you intend to actually to keep. Now, there's one other thing I wanna show you about vows here. And in verse five, we're told that uh, it has a financial side to it, or it seems to have some kind of financial side to it. And verse five says this, it's better that you should not make a vow than you should make it and not pay. Let your mouth not lead you into sin and don't say before the messenger, it was a mistake. And so he introduces this idea of probably what's going on here is that there's this messenger that's attached to the temple. He knows the pledges or the vows that people have made and so now he goes around collecting on those. And if he goes to somebody's house and they're like, oh man, I I didn't remember that and hey, that was a mistake. He says, that's a shameful thing, you don't want that. And so again, he's saying, if you make a financial vow, maybe you've had certain part of your finances you wanna give to God, maybe the sale of something, you wanna give the, some of the proceeds of that God, follow through on that. Now again, we do not have temple messengers that are coming around to keep a score with you and make sure that you're following through on that, but that's not the point. The point is that God is the one that's seeing that, and so God is the one that's going to say, hey, I'm watching that vow, and I want you to follow through on that. So be careful of the vows that you make. All right, there's one more and the last piece of the temple manners is important. Solomon says it kind of sums up all of the teaching up to this point. It's kind of the foundation of all of it. And this is what he said God is the one you must fear. Verse 7 For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is havel, there's vanity, there is uh, vapor. But God is the one you must fear. And he reminds us earlier, you know, God's in heaven, you're on earth, so (laughs) he's God, you're not, is what he's saying. So know your position, know your place, know what you're able to do and not able to do. And therefore, if you have this fear of God, this awe of God, you'll guard your steps, you'll control your tongue, and you'll fulfill your vows. Everything that we studied earlier about our manners is all predicated on that really starting point. You know, I spoke this last week to one of my friends, Peter Nordland. And uh, we've talked about um, the fear of God. And I've talked a few weeks ago because it came up in the book of Ecclesiastes about the fear of God. And I talked about the power of God. We certainly fear God because of his power. He has more power than, you know, anybody we know or anybody that we can imagine knowing. But he really pointed out to me that there's another aspect of our fear of God And it relates to the purity of God. It relates to the holiness of God. The things that God's able to do in this interpersonal way that we don't experience with other people at all. And he reminded me that Isaiah chapter five talks about Isaiah before the throne of God. And Isaiah says, I'm undone I'm a man of unclean lips. And he's realizing at that moment how holy God is and how dirty relatively he is. And so he's saying, I'm I'm understanding something about the power of God and just the holiness of God, the purity of God. You remember that seraphim flies over, takes a burning coal, whoosh, 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 comes over and puts it on his lips. And most of us are saying, whoa, I'm not sure I want a hot coal on my lips. But the point of that is to say that was what was purifying him. That was what was making him pure before God is that he was being branded, as it were, with this coal and it was taking away some of that iniquity that he had been a part of. Uh, The point I'm trying to make is, again, we have to start with a fear or an awe of God. Everything else is going to flow from that. So friends, those are the temple manners. The ways that we need to take specific actions in our worship of God and our treatment of each other. And I bet all of you are saying today, you know what, Pastor? I've done that perfectly. I bet that's what you're saying. You said, I've always guarded my steps and I have the right attitude every time I come to church. You're saying, I have perpetually controlled my tongue. There's no stray words there. You're saying, I've taken every vow extremely seriously. And so again, I'm without fault there. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're feeling? Because I'm not. I read a passage like this today and say, whoa, I think I've gone out of bounds several times, many times. And so what is it that we do if that's where you say? I I failed. I I haven't kept that. I'm guilty of not keeping these temple rules that God wants me to keep. The answer's the same for all of us. The answer is always this, confess this. Ask God to forgive, ask God to heal, ask God to restore. And friends, there's nothing really else that we can do except throw ourselves on the mercy of God. God loves honesty so much more than he loves pretending. And so if you're out of bounds in any one of those areas, boy, just acknowledge that and ask God for cleansing from that. Temple manners extend in all aspects of our lives. The way that we worship God matters. And it's not just done freestyle. It's not like whatever I want to do. There are some boundaries. There are some practices. Temple manners help us worship God rightly. And they help us worship God so that he receives glory and we actually receive benefit. That's the way God always works, is that he's telling us something that is for his glory, but it's also for our benefit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the book of Ecclesiastes and for Solomon's approach this week and talking to us about something that matters to you, the way that we approach you. And we don't do that flippantly with the sacrifice of fools. We do that wisely with your guidance. And so, Lord, uh, I'm well aware today that uh, I've broken some of the very rules I've talked about, and I know some of my friends have too. And so we come to you today, Lord, and we say... Restore us. Make our hearts clean before you. Find out if there's any wicked way in us and remove that. And Lord, we seek to have a relationship with you in which we honor you, in which we have table manners or temple matters that bring you glory, that are good and right and are helpful to us and the community around us. So Lord, you work in us today. Do your forgiving, do your correcting and we'll love you even more for it.